Hello, and welcome to the Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer, or Mid-East Soccer Podcast. I'm your host, James Dorsey. The future of U.S. engagement in the Middle East hangs in the balance. Two decades of forever war in Afghanistan and continued military engagement in Iraq and elsewhere in the region have prompted debate about what constitutes a U.S. interest in the Middle East. China, and to a lesser degree Russia, loom large in the debate as America's foremost strategic and geopolitical challenges. Questions about U.S. interests have also sparked discussion about whether the United States can best achieve its objectives by continued focus on security and military options, or whether a greater emphasis on political, diplomatic, economic, and civil society tools may be a more productive approach. The debate is colored by a pendulum that swings from one extreme to the other. President Joe Biden has disavowed the notion of nation building that increasingly framed the United States' post-9-11 intervention in Afghanistan. There is no doubt that the top-down nation building approach in Afghanistan was not the way to go about things. It rested on policy making that was informed by misleading and deceitful reporting by US military and political authorities and enabled a corrupt environment for both Afghans and Americans. The lesson from Afghanistan may be that nation building, to use a term that has become tainted for lack of a better word, has to be a process that is owned by the beneficiaries themselves while supported by external players from afar. Potentially adopting that posture could help the Biden administration narrow the gap between its human rights rhetoric and its hard-nosed, less values-driven definition of U.S. interests and foreign policy. A cursory glance at recent headlines tells a tale of failed governance with policies, hollowed-out democracies that were fragile to begin with, legitimization of brutality, fabrics of society being ripped apart, and an international community that grapples with how to pick up the pieces. Boiled down to its essence, the story is the same, whether it's how to provide humanitarian aid to Afghanistan without recognizing or empowering the Taliban, or efforts to halt Lebanon's economic and social collapse and descent into renewed chaos and civil war without throwing a lifeline to a discredited and corrupt elite. Attempts to tackle immediate problems in Lebanon and Afghanistan by working through NGOs might be a viable bottom-up approach to the discredited top-down method. If successful, it could, pro could provide a way of strengthening the voice of recent mass protests in Lebanon and Iraq that transcended the sectarianism that underlies their failed and flawed political structures. It would also give them ownership of efforts to build more open, pluralistic, and cohesive societies, a demand that framed the protests. Finally, it could also allow democracy to regain ground lost by failing to provide tangible progress. This week's sectarian fighting along the Green Line that separated Christian East from Muslim West Beirut during Lebanon's civil war 
highlighted the risk of those voices being drowned out. Yet, they reverberated loud and clear in the results of recent Iraqi parliamentary elections, even if a majority of eligible voters refrained from going to the polls. We never got the democracy we, we were promised and were instead left with a grossly incompetent, highly corrupt, and hyper-violent monster masquerading as a democracy and traumatizing a generation, commented an Iraqi Middle East counterterrorism and security scholar, Talha Abdul Razak, who voted only once in the first election held in 2005 after the U.S. invasion. Issues of nation-building, democracy promotion, and provision of humanitarian aid are part of the larger discussion of the future U.S. role in the Middle East, in a world that is likely to be bi- or multipolar. Former U.S. National Security Council and State Department official Martin Indyk argued in a recent essay adapted from a forthcoming book on Henry Kissinger's Middle East diplomacy that the U.S. policy, policy should aim to shape an American-supported regional order in which the United States is no longer the dominant player, even as it remains the most influential. Mr. Indyk reasoned that support for Israel and America's Sunni Arab allies would be at the core of that policy. While in a world of realpolitik, the United States may have few alternatives, the question is how alignment with autocracies and illiberal democracies would enable the United States to support a bottom-up process of social and political transition that goes beyond lip service. That question is particularly relevant given that the Middle East is entering its second decade of defiance and dissent that demands answers to grievances that were not expressed in Mr. Kissinger's time, at least not forcefully. Mr. Kissinger was focused on regional balances of power and the legitimization of a U.S.-dominated order. It was order, not peace, that Kissinger pursued because he believed that peace was neither an achievable nor even a desirable objective in the Middle East, Mr. Indyk said, referring to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mr. Indyk noted that in Mr. Kissinger's mind, the rules of a U.S.-dominated order would be respected only if they provided a sufficient sense of justice to a sufficient number of states. It did not require the satisfaction of all grievances, just an absence of the grievances that would motivate an effort to overthrow the order. The popular Arab revolts of 2011 that toppled the leaders of Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, and Yemen, even if their achievements were subsequently rolled back, and the mass protests of 2019 and 2020 that forced leaders of Sudan, Algeria, Iraq, and Lebanon to resign, but failed to fundamentally alter political and economic structures, are evidence that there is today a will to overthrow the order. In his essay, Mr. Indyk acknowledges the fact that across the region, people are crying out for accountable governments, but argues that the United States cannot hope to meet those demands even if it cannot ignore them either. Mr. Indyk may be right, yet the United States 
with Middle East policy at an inflection point cannot ignore the fact that the failure to address popular grievances contributed significantly to the rise of violent Islamic militancy and ever more repressive and illiberal states in a region with a significant youth bulge that is no longer willing to remain passive and or silent. Pointing to the 600 Iraqi protesters that have been killed by security forces and pro-Iranian militias. Mr. Abdul Razak noted in an earlier Al Jazeera op-ed that protesters were adopting novel means of keeping their identities away from the prying eyes of security forces and powerful Shia militias, such as blockchain technology and decentralized virtual private networks. Unless they shoot down internet providing satellites, they will never be able to silence our hopes for democracy and accountability again. That is our dream, Mr. Abdul Razak quoted Srinivas Baride, the chief technology officer of a decentralized virtual network favored by Iraqi protesters, as saying. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. A written version of this podcast is on my blog, the turbulent world of Middle East soccer at mideastsoccer.blogspot.com. Please join me for my next podcast in the coming days. All the best and take care.